This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, so uh, one question is, one of the, I mean, obviously, LL Land has a lot of fantasy elements, but you also, I, I'm always feeling like it's great, the more fantasy elements you have, the more you have to ground the show in reality, too, the movie. How did you balance that, making sure so they both, you know, kept it counterbalanced? Uh, that was really the big challenge. It was also the, the, the appeal of it, I think, to all of us, was to try to combine realism with the musical. Um, but we had to kind of be aware of that balance throughout. Um, you know, it had to affect the performances. Ryan and Emma had to give very grounded performances. Um, we had to find ways to visually unify the movie so that it didn't feel like a different movie when it was breaking into song. Um, and then editing took about a year, uh, and a lot of that was searching for, you know, that balance of tone. Is that exciting for you? Like, you know, with Whiplash, you're, you're, all your collaborators are getting recognized, too. How about, especially the editor, how is that for you, knowing that those guys are getting a lot of recognition, too? That's, that's my favorite thing about the whole, the, the, this whole award season, is the fact that, yeah, that the, I mean, this was such a collaborative endeavor, such a team effort, so for them to get this kind of recognition is huge. One of my students remarked, was they, they, of course, we met you, my students remarked, you were more happy when you saw your, uh, your guys win for Whiplash than anything we've ever seen on TV on the Oscars. <laughs> I was, uh, I was, that was slightly out of body, yeah. Um, it's also great, too, because when it's someone else winning who you're supporting, you get to just bask in the glow of it, but you also don't have to give a speech, so it's great. You get, you get the, the, the joy of it without the dread. So. Thank you so much. What was the biggest challenge about writing a character in three acts played by different actors, but you have to keep the through line, but also have the character evolve? Uh, I think it was just uh, considering uh, the, the characters having one continuous arc. You know, so intellectually, I had to unpack this idea that it was going to be three different actors with three different chapters. To me, it's one lifetime, you know, and the same spirituality carries through all three chapters. So it was about that. The beauty of it was the writer is writing knowing that the writer will become the director. So there were certain things I could do that on the page maybe were a bit elusive that I knew and the directing of the piece would be very clear to the audience. Did anything change on set when you met, well, like the first actor? Uh, no, no, no. I, I will say, though, I thought I'd have to use a different language to direct them, and then I realized I didn't. They were all pretty much carrying the same essence. Well, thank you for such a beautiful film, actually. Thank you for making it, and wonderful movie. Thank you. Uh, one of the things I loved about your screenplay was the first two acts were dramatic, powerful. There was punch, and there was the conflict. But act three, you went almost gentle and mm -hmm. subtle. Mm -hmm. Was that a, a planned tonal shift you had from the beginning? Uh, it was. And again, I'll, I'll speak to what I said before. The writer is helping the director. When you watch the film, the two longest shots in the movie are when the character pulls up to the diner. Uh, you know, he's, he takes out his shirt, puts a shirt on, he walks, he walks, gets in the diner, and we're still in one shot until we go to the, the close-up where they're looking right into the camera. That, to me, is reorienting the audience of how they perceive time. As a writer, I know that that's what needs to happen because I'm about to have a 15-page scene where every scene before that has been three pages. Um, and so as a director, I'm going to build this duration into those two first moments that introduce that, that sequence. So yeah, there is a shift that happens because we've been building this character for the first two-thirds of the film, and now the character is built, and he can just be. And now we get to a point where he's going to make a choice. So it was intentional, yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. All right, so you obviously thank you for coming, by the way, up to Santa Barbara for us. It was lovely. That was fun. Uh, one, we didn't get to ask you, what is your actual writing process? How do you begin your day? Um, you know, crying. No, uh, I, um, I, I tend to have a number of exercises waiting for me so that um, I can prime the pump. 
one of the biggest problems I have is that first of day writer's block where if I did myself a disservice and I ended the previous night on a problem, you know, if you write to where you get blocked or where you stumble, then it's harder to start the next day. So if I didn't do myself a favor of stopping when I had momentum, then I, I do a number of little hacks to try and get me writing. And that's typically what I do within the first hour or so. Otherwise, I can lose the first half of the day to YouTube. <laughs> All right. So you don't have to say who gave you the note, but what was the worst note you got on the script? Uh, probably when I was when we were shopping it around uh, at the main studios before the independent financiers came involved. And one studio exec said, you know, we would consider buying this if you changed the lead to a man. And I said to myself, I'm never coming back here. And then, uh, so for you, I mean, eight Oscar nominations. How has it been sharing this, sharing it with all your collaborators? The best, absolute best. Like everyone who's gotten involved in this film has made it better. They've just, they've added something that has elevated the material and still made it the same movie. So I'm, I'm more excited for Denis and Bradford and Joe maybe than I am for myself. Oh, of course. Thank you. And thank, thank you so Absolutely. much for coming back to us. And thank Thanks. you for coming out to Santa Barbara. Sure. Thank you. So how has actually been the awards rush for you? Exhausting. Uh, you know, I do look forward to a lot of sleep after this is done. Uh, and, and really, I didn't realize how much I leaned on work as a part of my structure. Um, I'm looking forward to writing again. Uh-huh. Let's go back to that. So can you tell us about your first meeting with Ted? Uh, the uh, first conversation with Ted about right. making this, uh, turning this into a movie. Um, when we first got the rights, we got a shopping agreement from Ted, and I wasn't a part of those conversations. The producers reached out and made that happen. Um, but then after we pitched it and no one bought the pitch, I came back and I said, I'd like to write it on spec, but that requires us to have a much longer extension of, that, of, the, of the rights. And Ted told all of us, I'm not going to do that unless I hear the pitch my, myself. And I got to tell you, I have done 100 pitches in my career to studio execs, and I've had some pretty terrible ones. I was never more scared than when I was pitching Ted's story back to him. Uh, and that was really my first experience. But after that, he said, I like it. I think it's got, uh, I think it's got promise. And, and he gave me the rights, and I, I started to work that night. One of the hard things for a screenwriter is killing your, your darlings or your babies. Yeah. Was there anything that you really wanted to keep in the script, but you knew you could not? Like you maybe fought to do it, you just couldn't make it work. Yeah, actually, it there actually there were there were darlings that made it even through filming, but then had to get axed in in edit, in the edit. But I, I would think in terms of the script itself, there was a there was a scene I wrote for Colonel Weber that I missed the most, and it just explained what was going on in his world and how much pressure he was under. But you realize it just didn't work when you saw it on the cutting room. It didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, tell us a little about Amy. Did she have anything specific she, when you first talked to her about her character? Anything she was curious about or what really she, grabbed her? Like she focused Here's on? the magical thing about Amy. She just knew that character from the start. Like All I had to give her was that script, and she filled everything else out. And, and, I, and I, was, I was so astounded by that. Of course, you also had to talk to Jessica Kuhn and a few other uh, uh, linguistics experts. Oh, of course, of course. So. Uh, and as we know, we're, we're trying to educate screenwriting students, which you did. You helped us a lot when you came up talking screenwriting. What is the key advice you want to give when they're actually writing screenplays? Things that you should t- maybe tell students to avoid. Traps, trappings when you're writing your script, or a really good piece of advice you maybe can pass on, you know, for new young screenwriters. The, I would say the, the, the greatest obstacle I have in, in screenwriting is just resistance and overcoming 
that uh, paper tiger. Uh, and so find a handful of exercises or life hacks that you can use to start writing right away and don't let uh, you know, writer's block or perfectionism stop you. The thing I was amazed about your script is, and we actually were starting teaching it as a lesson, uh, don't over-dialogue. Let the actor yeah. embody the character. Do non-verbal dialogue. Yeah. Something like Amy Adams will understand. She will. Is that something you try to, you, as you, you're going as a screenwriter, you've learned a lot? You don't need oh, dialogue yeah. a lot? You don't need nearly as much as you think you do. You know, uh, uh, there are different stages. Sometimes you'll have a producer who needs it all spelled out. But the moment you realize you get past that and it's like, we're going to go out to cast, you can say, oh, wait, hang on. We can chop a lot of this back. Right. All right. So, uh, well, thanks. Uh, congratulations on winning. How special is for you that your fellow writers, actually, all the, cla- all the people you love and all the other work said that your script was the best? Uh, I didn't think about that, but that's actually how you get to win, don't you? Right. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And, and it really stresses me out now to think about uh, if, you know, the next script of mine that they're going to see, they're going to judge it against this. So, uh, But I guess that's the job. That's the job. And uh, our last question is, in the Arrival sequel, are you going to consult with the Trump administration how to vet the aliens properly? Because you want it to be accurate. Extreme vetting. Extreme vetting would happen there. Yeah, that's true. No, there would be... Uh, there would be uh, I would like to see the ice patrols dealing with the with heptapods. That would be weird. Well, thank you again. Right, Congratulations. Thank you so much for doing our show. Uh, all right, so let's go back to the beginning. How difficult was it to pick and choose what stayed in the story and not? Because they had 40 years of history. Yes. That was actually one of the biggest challenges because they had a lot of amazing accomplishments. They worked on the Apollo mission and what some of them worked on like the rovers and then there were a lot of women we had to leave out like Christine Darden who's amazing. So that was a big challenge but I think we had a good ensemble. Were you concerned about making a movie about math? No, <laughs> I actually wasn't. I love math. I think everyone should love math so I was excited. Uh, so how did you balance doing the personal stories versus you know the segregation the racism because you need to kind of strike a balance because it could have weighed the film down right. or been too light right well Catherine Johnson said from the beginning that it wasn't just about her it was about all the women so we knew it needed to be an ensemble and about women lifting other women up and then when we read the research and we heard about the Girl Scout troops and the potlucks and the churches and everything they did together we wanted to show layered complicated women with personal lives and children and husbands and friendships and that was just always a part of it. Uh, so how was it? How did you feel when you see Taraji playing your character, scripted character? That was amazing. It was one of the first scenes I saw when I came to set was when she's watching John Glenn take off. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, this is going to work. This is really going to work. Because she transformed so thoroughly into Catherine. Janelle amazed me, especially in the courtroom scene. For me, yes. it was one of the most powerful. Yes. Again, surprising, because they went in a different direction. It wasn't just punch That's the right. judge in the face. That's right. How was that scene for you when you saw that? I mean, that was beautiful. And it was one of the scenes that I read about in the research first. And so it's one of my favorite scenes. And the fact that it's true, and it happened, and she got to go to the all-white high school for extension classes, it's really special. So I love both the moment with the judge and when she leaves and sort of squeals yeah. outside, because that's the Mary we've come to love. All right, so did you ever imagine a, a story about three African-American women... Holly, you know, being released in the theaters about math has done amazing business and, and more importantly, inspired a lot of young girls. 
that's been incredible. The inspiring little girls, some of them dressing up and standing in front of the posters and going to see it multiple times. I think that's been the most rewarding. I didn't realize at the time it would resonate with kids so young, but I definitely hoped it would inspire the next generation of STEM. All right, what was the biggest challenge from your first draft? Did you map everything on index cards? How did you put this structure, this whole entire huge, could have been a 12-hour miniseries together? Well, that was actually one of the problems, was that it spanned a lot of decades and a lot of women, and so narrowing it down was tough, but we knew these three women were who we wanted to focus on, and then getting it within the John Glenn time frame of, of that mission. So the first struggle was trying to get all the history right and all the math right and all the technology, and then once that was in place, Donna, the producer, looked at me and said, now go have fun, Schroeder, go have fun. And that was one of the best rewrites I had, yeah. All right, so from uh, was there any particular scene that stayed from your early draft that you were most happy that stayed in the movie? To the final because screenwriters always have their babies well the whole end sequence is pretty much the same where she's running the numbers and running it back and launching so that's all still there and then i mean the monologue where she tells all of them in the space task group uh to go shove it a bit and then uh, the sign gets taken down that was all part of the beginning and stayed through the end uh was there anything uh we only have time to talk about one, so we'll talk about Octavia. Was there anything about really special that you saw in one of her scenes that, like, oh, my God, I can't believe the way she delivered this line? It was definitely the scene with Kirsten Dunst and Octavia Spencer in the bathroom when she says, I know, and she paused just right, and then she goes, I know you believe that, that that line just got transformed between the two of them into something so much more. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, races, it's, it was, sexism and racism is more interesting sometimes when it's subtle. And it was just kind of, and that was a great scene. And uh, Ted did tell us Kirsten had a hard time acting in that because she's actually opposite that person. She did, yeah. I think she had stomach aches every time she had to be mean to Octavia Spencer. But it's great. And you can see the two of them. I mean, they're at the top of their game in that scene. Uh, you don't have to say who this person maybe gave you this note or from Hidden Figures, but what was there any note that you've ever gotten as a screenwriter that just drove you crazy? Well, I pitched a thriller with two female leads, and they said, great, can you change into men? I just was like, I could, but I don't want to. So you get notes like that every now and then. Uh, and what about uh, any advice for aspiring screenwriting students? Any, like, screenwriting pratfalls, don't fall into this trap you want to give to our students? Um, there are a few things. I mean, one, my teacher said it's a marathon, not a sprint, and I think that's really true. It takes a long time, and you have to keep writing, and you have to always be writing. Have, like, three projects at once going on. And don't be above getting people coffee and being a PA and learning on the job. I think you need to be a little humble in the beginning and learn from people that have been there longer. Well, good luck tonight. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what was, uh, did anything about Ruth or Joel's uh, performance surprise you? Or the way they you know, took a different directlet? Yeah, you know, the thing about uh, Ruth and Joel's performance, uh, I cast Ruth and then I cast Joel, uh, and you're thinking about Joel being Richard and, and, and Ruth being Mildred, but when they got together, um, they became this other thing, which was the couple, the lovings, and that's what was so impressive, because here are two people that really didn't know each other very well, you know, Joel and Ruth. Uh, they hadn't met before we really made the film, and when you see them on screen together, it's like they've been together their whole lives, which is representative Richard and Mildred. That surprised me. Uh, it's just great acting. Uh, one question is, what was the most difficult uh, sh uh, scene to shoot on set? Well, uh, the most difficult. Uh, we had different ones for different actors. For me personally, um, I'd have to say, 
I think it's the scene where Richard comes home after uh, being at a bar all night and tells his wife he can take care of her. It was just such an emotional scene. Um, it wasn't difficult in the sense that I had to like beat it out of the actors or anything. It was difficult in that um, I was just crying through the whole thing. It was so emotional. What Joel brought into that room and what Ruth met him with um, felt so sincere that, uh, yeah, that was a tearjerker. One of the things, I mean, to me, the hard part watching the film was realizing this is true. And that's what actually the most difficult part. When you're doing the research, how difficult was research? And how much did you learn that you didn't even know? Well, you know, luckily I had Nancy Bursky's documentary, The Loving Story, as a great foothold. Um, it was kind of like having four years of research just dumped in your lap. Um, but the things you don't know, uh, I think, are how many people this story has affected. Um, you realize that Loving v. Virginia, there's a reason why it wasn't on the lips of every American a lot of us know about Brown versus the Board of Education, you know. A lot of us know about other um, kind of iconic civil rights moments. This one somehow had been flying under the radar. And I, and I think it's um, partly because it's about sex, it's about marriage. Um, and I was, I was impressed by, um, I think, how many people it had affected, yet how unknown it was. And how's it been for you with Ruth getting all her recognition Especially, and you're actually your cast and crew, of course, but having Ruth with the nomination and everything. It's great. I mean, uh, it's kind of the pinnacle of, of what you hope for with a project like this, is that it gets recognized to the point that you know people are, are watching it and people are paying attention. I think to get that nomination, um, even that one nomination, it just means that many people, you know, have sat down and watched this film and have found out about Richard and Mildred. Well, thank you so much and good luck tonight. Thanks so much, Robert. All right, so we do a screenwriting TV show. We try to teach screenwriting students important lessons. Uh, you guys broke the fourth wall. You had the character talk exposition, and you had a superhero potty mouth. When you were typing, were you able to do it without saying, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm breaking all these rules? Well, the great thing about Deadpool, the character, and the comic is that he he's a character who does break all the rules. So it really did allow us to, to kind of unshackle from all the traditional screenwriting, you know, don'ts. Uh, it almost encouraged all the don'ts, so it was very liberating for us. And how about for you? Uh, how was it working with Ryan Reynolds? Because he was much more involved than most time actors are in the screenwriting process. Ryan's terrific. He's a writer at heart, and uh, he's a wonderful improviser. And he really speaks the voice of Deadpool. He has Deadpool living up up somewhere inside of his head, uh, like a character from Inside Out, I guess. Uh, and and so he was our Bible a little bit. Whenever Deadpool's voice didn't sound quite right, he would catch it, and and uh, as such, it made our job a lot easier. Uh, women characters in superhero movies, I hate to make a generalization, but they're not always well developed. The women, the girlfriend, they're just you know two dimensional. You get you had a really rich, full character. How was that for you to actually develop a, a real character and a real relationship with our hero? Yeah, I mean, at, at the core, Deadpool was a love story, you know, and and. As, as important in a love story as, as the, the hero is, is the, the, the woman. And so, you know, we look at characters not, not by their gender, but just, you know, we try and develop as, as best we can and, and build them out as into a whole being. And that's what we try to do with all our characters. And it just worked out that the women felt real. So, How difficult was it writing the romantic montage of the different holidays? That was the, probably the toughest thing in the entire script because we originally wrote it pretty vaguely, 
but then there came a time when we actually had to shoot it, and, and so people started to try to pin us down and say, okay, what are we actually doing in this sequence? And we had to match up all the acts with the holidays, and it was, it was a bit of a nightmare, but we, we came out on the other end okay. You want to pitch your... Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> we had some, we had that some ideas that cut. didn't make the cut. And um, better left better left unsaid. One, I not even one holiday you can't just give us a tease? Easter. Easter. We did have a, your a, a, a creepy Easter uh, creepy Easter sex. So. Well, thank you guys so much. And good luck tonight and, of thank course, at the so Writers much. Guild next week. Thanks so thank much. Thank you so we much for talking it. with us. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so what was the biggest challenge going into this fourth season for you? Going into the fourth season of Transparent? I mean, just to keep it fresh, I think. You know, it's like we've built these, these incredible characters, but you want to make sure that you don't get silly and that you're still rooted in an emotional truth for them. And I think after going into your fourth season, it's, you know, we've seen these characters a lot. How do we make it fresh? How do we not keep playing the same stories over and over again? Because like, All right, so talking a little about Jeffrey, uh, what... Tambor, Jeffrey Tambor. Uh, what was the uh, what is the uh, biggest thing that surprises you even to this day about his performance? Kissing on the lips at the Amazon party. What? <laughs> See, I'm not surprised by that. But, yeah, well, I love Jeffrey, I, and we love each other, and we always hug. And yeah. but I was the, the lip, the, the full kiss was quite a surprise. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud to hear that you guys had a moment. We did. We did. So for you, is there anything he wanted this season? You know, something like, I want my character to go in a different direction or any kind of things he was looking for to collaborate with you? Well, I think Jeffrey is always looking for the most authentic moment. I think that is like over and over again he is looking for, is this real? Is this true? Can I play this? And if he gets the sense that it's not that, he will bring it up. And I, we cherish that because it, we want to make sure we're putting the best things forward as well. I have to say, as an actor, I'm in, continually inspired by Jeffrey. He's like an idol. I mean, I, I watch him. I watch their show, but I watch Jeffrey, and I, I love him. I think he's... Well, in general, that's something we try to tell our screenwriting students, how important the relationship with the actor and the writers are. Because there is no movie without the script. There's no movie without the actors. So for you, is that important where you can actually work together with the writers? Not With sometimes like features, it's more like... You know, you don't even meet the writer sometimes. Well, I would say yes. I mean, in the case of One Mississippi, since it's about Tig Nataro, it's based on Tig's story and Tig's life, and she's a writer, and I'm playing her stepfather, so it's very, you know, I mean, that we're very um, connected. But, um, you know, I realize that everything that I'm playing has been, is written, you know, has been considered and... Yeah, I mean, I think on Transparent, we like... As a writer and a producer, I think we see there's three stages of writing, which is there's before it goes to the actors, before it goes to the set. You know, we try and think uh, and we try and put our feelings into it and our emotions and try to, like, really map out an arc for these, for these actors. And then I think when we get to set, sometimes that changes. There's very much a conveyor belt of, of feeling and information that goes between the writers who are always on set and the actors because our show is, you know, has some of the best actors on television. And then I think... So that's like part two. And then part three is when you get in the editing room and you kind of have to rewrite it again. It's like, okay, well, how do we tell this story again in the quickest, uh, most powerful way? So we, I think from the beginning in the writer's room of Transparent, we think about three stages of writing. As a writer-producer, is it so much easier now with the Amazon-Netflix model, less episodes, but you can focus a little more on the writing and, you know, shorter amount of episodes? Yeah, you know, I never was like a like a, a writing room guy. Like, I never did a network show. Uh, 
uh, I've only kind of worked for uh, Amazon and and people who have let us uh, make the shows that we want to make and take the time to tell the story. So I actually can't speak to that. I've never been. I mean, I, I have lots of friends who have stories, but I've always been like I've been very lucky in that like trans, uh, transparent and Amazon have been uh, incredibly nurturing uh, as a sort of a creative partner. I, I went to Yale Drama School back in the day when it was run by Robert Brewstein and the whole ethos of that school was an actor is there to serve the writers. That's what your job is. It's about that. And I've always believed that. I mean, I, I mean that is where, you know, sort of I come from. That that and in this case, it seems like the studio is there to support your show. It's all about making, they want the quality. They don't care about, you know, they're not trying to interfere or... My experience has, with Transparent has been incredibly nurturing and supportive of the artistic vision of Jill Soloway and her team of writers and producers. Like they have been true partners and true believers and when they raise their hand and give us a note, it's because they mean it and it's because it's a real note and it's usually right, you know? Well, thank you guys both and good luck tonight. I hope you enjoy this. So you've done a million movies, so we only have time for one. A million, but... Well, uh, so we're going to jump on The Big Chill, one of my all-time favorites. We'll jump on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, so how was it for you working more of an ensemble piece? You know, with uh, fellow actors, more of an ensemble piece on set. What was the process of developing your character for that movie? That's a good question. Uh, uh, but briefly, um, it was a... Speaking of screenplays, that was a... Um, um, unimprovised performance on all of our parts pretty much because it was such a meticulously beautifully written screenplay by Barbara Benedek and Lawrence Kasdan. Uh, and they um, had us get together like a play more than like a movie and we rehearsed for four weeks all day long. Got into a studio, taped off some of the, like Sidney Lament used to do a little bit I hear, uh, taped off uh, some of the sets uh, talked about our backstories and got bonded a little bit here and there, but uh, broke down the scenes and then all moved to Buford, South Carolina, where we continued our off-screen melding, you know, and uh, tried to make it uh, look like we were making it up and make it good. That sounds rare because a lot of times you don't have time to rehearse. So it must have been special with Kevin and Glenn actually finding the chemistry with each other. Yeah, it was uncommon. Uh, and I think it was uh, fruitful. I enjoyed it no end. Is that one of the reasons you jumped on Silverado right after? Because knowing you wanted to experience that kind of thing again? Oh, yes. I loved all those people, and I jumped on it with two, you know, with wild abandon. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. What impressed me about your, your, your two pinnacle roles is the fact that you devote so much humanity to it. Right, absolutely. And that's what I thought was so special, especially scenes with Denzel. They were just, right. really, he's the heart, you two are the heart of the movie. Well, in a lot of ways. That's, I'm just glad there is a heart. You know what I mean? But I think August Wilson lays it down like no one else. It was an absolute privilege to be part of Fences. And, uh, and for me, it was interesting because Denzel's character is not the nicest fellow in the end of the movie. Right. But, again, he had three-dimensional humanity. Was that something you guys worked on set to make sure you didn't go too dark or, you know... Well, we all, the beauty of working with the Denzel is you don't work for him, you work with him. And... Uh, the beauty, man, this place is hopping. It is crazy. This place is hopping right now. But the beauty of working with a Denzel is not only that you don't work for him, but you work with him. 
that makes it fun because Denzel does his work, we all do our work, no one interferes, and the final product is, is usually amazing. Is that one of the advantages of having an actor turn director because he knows what you're going through? Absolutely. Yeah. And he doesn't meddle. Right. And you don't, you don't dare meddle with Denzel, and he doesn't meddle. He gives you the freedom to do what you do. Well, thanks so much for talking Thank with you. us. And I'm so glad the film's getting recognized. So am I for August Wilson. You know, I mean, for August, so it was, but you know, and the fact that it's been embraced and the audience is coming out, you know, right. that's why people forget the Oscar nominations are important. Right. It actually gets the re-release. Right. So thank you Absolutely. so much. Thank and, you so much. And thanks for talking right. with us. Obviously, Fences went through a long, long gestation period. What was your biggest challenge getting the script to the screen? The biggest challenge getting the script to the screen was uh, really just making sure we were honoring August Wilson's words at every turn and that the script and the play kind of resembled each other as much as possible and to try to make it a moving picture and to try to keep it as authentic as he wanted it to be when he wrote the screenplay and when he wrote the play and getting the financing thanks to Paramount and Braun and Macro and, uh, and finding the perfect kid to play uh, Corey, Giovanna mm. Depo, and finding the yeah, perfect yeah. little girl to play Raynell, Sonia Sidney. We used the rest of the Broadway cast, but just kind of keeping an authenticity to it. How, yeah, how much did that make it easier for you, knowing that you had the leads, they're already comfortable with the characters, just had to find a way to expand it to the screen? It really made it much easier on Denzel, because he could, you know, because he had done it on Broadway, 114 performances, right. and Viola had done it. You know, it made it it made it much more doable to both direct and act in it. You know, right. I think had they had he not done that, it would have made it pretty much impossible because it's a huge role right. and it's a huge directing role. Right. All right. Well, thank you so okay. much and uh, good luck. How did you find the humanity in your relationship between the two of you? Because you have to make them likable and believable. Yeah, I, you know, it was an interesting, an interesting uh, challenge because we had to bat that around a little bit, you know. And and Taylor had hadn't really had a, some of the responses to it, but he he gave me some freedom. David McKenzie as well, and he said, "Listen, if you've got some comeback for it, you know, let it fly, and Jeff can handle it." Um, but I think initially uh, we found a chemistry because we both played music, and we did a lot of jamming together. And that's, that's kind of a different language, but what was really important to us is that you realize the importance, the love that these characters had. And this was just men having an awkward way of not being able to tell each other how they felt. Yeah, I thought your death scene was particularly powerful and his reaction to it, yeah. you know, was one of my strongest, uh, we tried to screenwrite too, uh, serious nonverbal moments yeah. are so important, let the actors breathe. Uh, what, what, what was the most challenging scene for you then? I think that one, you know, the, the, the shot because we were in um, I think it was 114 degree temperatures and there was no shade or anything um, but aside from that you're really trying to find the connection and the dynamics with these characters and and I just love Jeff I mean he's just such a special human being so to that extent there was a lot of trust that, that had to happen between us and uh, thankfully it worked out as well as it did. One of my favorite scenes was the diner scene with the waitress yeah. So, how about for you? Was what was how fun was that for you? Just reacting to her. I, I that was a great day. That was a great day. Margaret Bowman was fantastic in that. She and a lot of people think that she was, you know, uh, from that area that we just picked her off the street. That was how great she was. 
and uh, she's an actress. She was in uh, No Country for Old Men as well. Um, fantastic, fantastic. Couldn't couldn't be more gracious and, and loving and this the, the synergy of a whole team because that's really what it really takes. Uh, and I just feel very blessed to be part of it. As far as as an actor, what do you look for in a screenplay? Because we like to give advice to our screenwriting students. What is something that makes you want to play the part that jumps out for you? I think the the human the humanness of the characters, you know, which can be on the page, and sometimes you'll find it in the chemistry of the actors. You'll definitely have an influence of the director. That's why I say there's so many components that have to really come together. But I love telling real human stories. Um, and there's, of course, you know, space for entertainment and, you know, the summer flicks and all that kind of thing. But as actors, that's where we get to delve and explore, you know, the, the condition, the human condition, you know, and what makes us tick. Well, thank you so much, and good luck tonight. Enjoy the evening. Thanks. Thanks. All right, so uh, it's the 20th anniversary of Boogie Nights. And what was your gut reaction when you first read the script and your part? Um, the script I read was a, a lot racier than the film that was made. And I thought, is this a joke? I, I thought is, it was, uh, was softcore porn. I mean, there was... Um, and they said, no, it's going to go out as an R-rated film. So I knew what that meant. And then I read it again, and I realized uh, Paul Anderson was a genius. And uh, I pitched myself to him, only to find out he was pitching himself to me. I loved it. I loved that script. One thing about the script, there's a lot of nonverbal... Your character has a lot of nonverbal scenes. Is that something you look for in a script, where you'll, the screenwriter allows the actor to kind of convey the emotion without over-dialogue? Yep. Um, it's best if you can do it with a look rather than, um, or with an action rather than saying it. Do I look for those things? No, but I'll tell you, Wendy Wasserstein wrote this play called Uncommon Women and Others, and there's a character who has, she's in, in 20 scenes, and she has one line laid in. She walks away with it every time that thing is produced. It's a great role to have no lines. Is that why one of the reasons you jumped on Magnolia to reteam with the, the you know, Paul and another great part. But I had a lot of lines. I well, in that one you'd have a lot of great lines, but the character was so different and interesting compared to the Boogie Nights. Well, when Paul Thomas Anderson calls you, you the answer is yes. What's the project? But you didn't worry about the frogs. No. <laughs> no, that happens. Thank you so much, That's and good luck tonight. Screenwriting question for you. Oh, okay. When you when you take something like Love Actually, I I which I love dearly, uh, when you have like a multiple protagonist, how do you balance like you know the screen time? Because you don't you have to cut some things you probably really cared about, you know, because you have multiple characters to explore. Well, <clears throat> Love Actually, of all the films I've written, is the one that turned out most wrong after we'd shot it. So in fact, I think it's very hard to judge. What you've got to try and do is write good stuff for all of them, and then actually remake the order and remake the dynamic of it once it's shot. That's what we did on Love, actually. The, the script I wrote had all the same contents, but in a completely different order to the finished film. So something like Notting Hill was a little, a little easier for you? Basically yeah, yeah, yeah. a two-character piece. Know, she walks into the room, she kisses him, she goes away. But in this one, it was like playing three-dimensional chess, because after every scene, you could put any scene from any of the other ten stories. So maybe on a, uh, when you do an ensemble piece, on, it's more the director on set, which you directed, of course, has a lot more to do 
trying to re, uh, rework the script at the same time. No, no, I think they've got a lot to do in the edit. That would be what I have to say. I think they've got a lot to do in the edit. In some ways, they're great fun to do because you only have to work for a week or two with each actor so they never see through you and realize what a bad director you are. Well, thank you so much for your screenwriting wisdom. Thank you. So, Little Salvador, what was your initial gut reaction when you first read the script? Well, it was called South of the Border. It was insane. But I thought Midnight Express was so great. And I said, has Oliver really directed before? And they said, well, he did like a movie called The Hand. I said, okay. But then I met him, and he was really this incredibly provocative, interesting, and slightly disturbing person to me. He was just so different from anybody I'd ever met. And the first thing he wanted me to do goes down to El Salvador with Richard Boyle. And the week we were supposed to go down, they killed our technical advisor. They murdered him and put a nail gun through his forehead, nailed a flag to his forehead. Uh, and I said, Oliver, I really don't want to go down there. He said, oh, don't be such a wimp. I said, they're killing people. It's not, you know, I am slightly recognizable. So we started off on that foot. And now 31 years later, 32 years later, he's uh, asked me to present a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I think our friendship went in the right direction. What was the most challenging scene to shoot down there? The hardest scene was a scene we did uh, called the El Plion scene. It was where the, the disparacitos, the people who had disappeared, were found with their bodies thrown on a garbage dump. And we as photojournalists had to witness this atrocity, and it was just an unbearable day of shooting. It was just really emotionally very, very trying. Thank you so much, and good luck tonight. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Born on the 4th of July really affected me as a, as a, as a teenager. Uh, what, what grabbed you about the story when you first heard about it? Well, I read the book, uh, and I had been in Vietnam, and Ron Kovic's experience was hell compared to what I went through. So, you know, it was a very moving uh, picture about America and the people who'd gone to the war and turned against it. Because one said, hey, Jimmy, how are you? <laughs> another, a, another veteran. <laughs> And then Tom Cruise at that time was always the big hero. And it was the first time he kind of, I thought, branched out into an amazing performance. Did, yeah. How did, what made you want to cast him? Because it was kind of... Uh, he had the same qualities as Ron did as an all-American boy, you know. He really worked very hard on it and took it very seriously. He did a great performance. Thank you so much and good luck tonight. All right, so uh, well, we'll ask you a, a screenwriting question. You don't seem to shy away from taking challenging books, Social Network and Moneyball, not instinctively visually screenwriting. Yet. So what was, or Steve Jobs. So, so what, what draws you to these kind of difficult uh, books? I, it's, I'm less drawn than shoved uh, uh, into them. By, <laughs> um, there'll be, what'll happen is with, uh, it, it, it was uh, The Accidental Billionaires was what uh, Social Network was based on. Uh, and uh, uh, what happens is there'll be something in there uh, where I'll say, I, if, I, if I focus on that, there's a great story there, and I'll just go after that. And a friend of mine who's very good at adaptation said that the key is fall out of love with the source material. Um, uh, you kind of have to fall in love with it, then break up with it, um, uh, and just and make the movie your own thing, uh, and, and and that's important. Uh, I, I mean, I respect the source material a lot, but you you can't be a slave to it.
And our last question is, uh, we always try to teach character openings. Mm -hmm. And I look at Social Network, Jesse Eisenberg and Rennie Marner's scene. How did that, was that mostly in the script version or did you work a lot with them on set? No, that was entirely in the script. Nothing was invented uh, on the set. But I will tell you that uh, we spent, it was a nine-page scene, a fairly simple scene, just two people sitting at a table in a bar in terms of shooting it. It's the master over, over, maybe a couple of sizes. But we spent two nights on it. David Fincher did 99 takes because he wanted to tire them out and kind of what, in, in his words, he didn't want them giving the performance that they were just giving in the shower before they came to the set. Uh, so he wanted to tire them out. There was a lot of language. He wanted to casualize the language um, uh, and uh, just have them toss it off like it's their phone number. Uh, so he did 99 takes. We begged him to do just one more so we could say it was 100. But he said after the 99th, no, I got it. <laughs> Thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.